Hi, I'm Sergeant Sarah Kelly, and this is today's episode with 1CA's podcast. So thank you for joining us. And we are interviewing Mr. Timothy Dar and Major Brian Hancock. Both of them were authors in one of the finalist papers for the Civil Association's Call for Papers. And their document was titled, Integrating Civil Affairs Through the Application of Battlefield-Relevant Civil Information Management. It was co-authored with Rhiannon Hazel and Peter Grazidis. So thank you, gentlemen, for joining me today. Have you, either of you worked together before, before writing this paper? I will start off. The project that we're going to talk about here shortly is a project that we're under contract for uh, by Army Research Lab. And as part of the initial research on that project, we came across a PowerPoint slide that Mr. Hancock put together. We found it very interesting and very insightful with sim process. And so we reached out to him and said, you know, described a little bit about what we were doing on our project. And he responded with some level of interest. And so we collaborated back and forth ideas and feedback and when the call for papers came out i thought that would be a great way for us to collaborate and and get some of the ideas out in the paper for the community to discuss major hancock i just add to that dr dar and i we both have a passion for trying to inform decision makers how to make better decisions and we want to give them good data informed decision making so my work that dr dar was referring to was looking at the rim of the pacific major international exercise and attempting to quantify civil systems in measurable ways to show precise statistics and measurable progress through a humanitarian assistance disaster relief mission. And that work was eventually presented through the Pentagon's strategic multilayered assessment. And I demonstrated how that model was transferable to other bodies of knowledge, such as trying to measure project in stability operations and insurgency in Afghanistan and in other places. So it, it kind of became natural uh, over time that Dr. Dar and I had similar interests that we'd come together and look at how projects we were mutually working on might be able to benefit you know not only the civil affairs community but the larger military community the civilian establishment and, and ultimately america at home and abroad can you briefly discuss what sim is and the purpose of the civil information management absolutely i'll take that one civil information management is a process involving six steps five of which are exactly the same as the intelligence process. Goal of them is to deliver battlefield relevance. Now, understand that's my term, not necessarily a doctrinal term, but the goal is to deliver battlefield relevance, knowledge to decision makers in support of uh, civil military operation. Now, to be relevant, uh, information that would inform a senior decision maker currently is interpreted as it has to have the potential to affect maneuver. So, in other words, the goal of civil information management, that process, the output of that process at the end of it should be to provide something that's insightful to a senior decision maker, which causes him to either modify an existing intended course of action or to stand up a new course of action as a result of potential effects in the civil system, which could include potential support that we could get from civil systems to make our job easier throughout the phases of military operations. In the paper where you were discussing how one of the products was developed by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, it was the Engineer Research and Development Center, the framework for integrating complex uncertain systems, known as FICUS. 
Can you explain exactly what that is? I would love to do that. I want to take one step back first, talking a little bit more about the relevancy, because some of these capabilities involve certain degrees of complexity in systems, complexity in math, complexity in other things. So why go to all of the energy to do this? You know, we talked about you know the importance of informing commanders in the last questions. Information clearly in the modern battlefield is the currency of command, so the more and better information that commanders have, especially on complex social systems, will help them make better decisions. But at the higher level, ultimately, when America goes to war, this is you know not a choice that would be made lightly. It's often the choice of last resort. But when we get into a war situation, it, you know, it becomes critical that we win that war. And the way we win that war is by achieving our strategic objectives. Historically, we've been, as a force, extremely adept at at winning tactical victory. But the challenge is converting those tactical victories, Auschwitz would say, into huge strategic victories. We've had some challenges. And when we look back at the various wars that America has been involved in since 1945, there, unfortunately, is a consistent pattern of a great tactical success followed by inability to achieve strategic objectives, which is very concerning for everyone involved, certainly all, all Americans, the military established. Uh, and others, because the reason that you risk blood and treasure is to achieve strategic objectives. And if we're, if we're not doing that, unfortunately, it could potentially render moot some of the blood and treasure that was sacrificed in that conflict. So the new national defense strategy is trying to realign us back to those strategic objectives that will help bring us to victory and identifies near-peer competitors uh, who have significant capabilities in many realms, including information-related capabilities and civil affairs courses and information capability that we have to be able to manage and counter. So when we do an analysis and we look at those strategic objectives and conflicts since 1945 that we've been largely unable to achieve, one of the consistent themes is that many of those objectives that we've had challenges with in stability and transition have been political objectives where we need the host nation or the local population to exhibit certain behaviors which will support ongoing U.S. foreign policy in that region. And we haven't been able to convert on that and a number of cases achieve the behaviors of the local population that we have been looking for. And one of the reasons we haven't been able to achieve that is we have insufficient understanding of how these social systems are built, how social systems interact. What we do know is that mathematically they are what we call complex adaptive systems, meaning that an individual agent, such as a person, a single person, can do something like hit a button that turns off the power grid and shut the entire power grid down, which affects the system, or changes in the power grid, let's say there's a brownout in one area, could potentially affect the behavior of the individual agents, the person who happened to be in that area. So the agent can affect the system, and the system can in turn affect the agent in very complex ways. And that's how social systems and city systems, and I know later we'll talk about mega cities, 10 million plus cities, which are the most complex cases, but those systems can be affected by individuals, and in turn, those individuals can affect the systems. And we need to try and understand that so that if we're going to do an intervention, a policy intervention, a buyer's mission, any type of intervention which can touch those social systems and their related agents, we need to be able to simulate and model what we expect the results will be so that we can optimize our course of action to ensure that we're achieving the maximum effects that we're looking for for the minimum cost while simultaneously minimizing the unintended consequences and second and third order effects. So that is why we're looking at some of these potentially complicated 
innovative technologies and systems to help bring us in terms of our capabilities of, of modeling civil terrain into that modern digital era. And one of those products is what you mentioned, the framework for integrating complex uncertain systems led by Dr. Charles Astinger at the Engineering Research and Development Center. But understand that this that's a collaboration of many different universities, Urbana-Champaign and many others are involved in that collaboration as partners with ERDC in producing that. Now, scientifically, what they're trying to do, and this is a mouthful, they're trying to create computational frameworks for interoperating uncertainty, quantified social systems, and models. That sounds very complicated, but in a nutshell, what FICUS attempts to do is take atomic-level data, which in the civil terrain is an individual household. A neighborhood has many households, many multiple neighborhoods can be a precinct, and it scales from there, but they take individual household data, which comes from a variety of sources, and from that, they are able to aggregate it and conduct a Monte Carlo simulation in about six seconds, which will demonstrate if certain things are injected into that environment, if certain things happen, like a typhoon hit or there's an outbreak of cholera or a missile strike, what would those population uh, units be likely to do? It allows us to help model human behavior and to try and generate and quantify that uncertainty, that risk that's involved with what the civilian population is likely to do when different crises are occurring around them. And of course, the value of that is if we can quantify with high degree of certainty what we think the worst case scenario is, what we think the best case scenario is, then that allows us to better assess the courses of action that we want to take. It allows us to better stage resources. It allows us at the strategic level to better force tailing to ensure we're bringing the right capabilities based upon what our simulations show. And allows us to make better use and positioning of the capabilities, supplies, and personnel that are injected into a situation, increasing beneficial effects and reducing overall cost. FICUS is one of these programs that does that. There are articles on it. There's a website that people can go to and, and play with their modeling capabilities and is currently a, has a CIBRA grant and is receiving some DOD funding, so they're attempting to increase some of the funding through different sourcing to do tests in some real-world environment to demonstrate how that information can really help us make a better decision in a, a variety of uh, military operations. Would some of the civil affairs teams going out, would that be more beneficial to use them in conjunction with some of the aid groups that might be on the ground for the data collection? It's going to be beneficial to every echelon of command. At, at the tactical level, when you have a four-man CA team by Army Doctrine, Marine Corps CA teams are a little different, but when they're running around, they are doing important civil reconnaissance, data collection, sometimes some key leader engagements and other things. They're where the rubber meets the road. The FICUS model will allow them to portal through their own capabilities, whether that is a net warrior, secure, portable communication system, or whether that is a PC back in the tactical operations center or wherever, that will allow them to portal back to a suite of supercomputers, input basic data. The supercomputers will run those models so that their local bandwidth requirements are very, very small, and then send back all of the output. So even dynamically during a mission, it would be possible for a CA team to model certain things. So for instance, if they're meeting with a village elder and the village elder says, I would really like it if you were to build a well here using a, a classic counter-counterinsurgency example, that's CA team could say, okay, let's 
look at that, they can input some data, they could then send that back to supercomputer. And if we have that local data set, which includes things like household level of water consumption, water use, distance to water sources, etc., then they could do a model which would send back and indicate where the best location would be to put that well and what the capacity would be. And that the C18 could do that in the field in the span of that KLE. That's a tactical level example. And then previously I mentioned a force tailoring example, which is at the other end of the spectrum at the strategic level when we're deciding what forces would need to be sent in, you know, what cores, what divisions, what brigades, and to what purpose. This Monte Carlo simulation, the ability to do about a thousand simulations in about a little over an hour, would allow them to really look at what they would need to mitigate the worst case scenarios and how they could exploit the civil terrain in favorable ways for both the U.S. and the local population under some of the other risk scenarios to make sure that they're bringing the right capabilities when they go in the first time because it's very expensive to surge additional forces and to do other things but it's also very difficult when there's a lot of uncertainty at the beginning of conflict as to what the possibilities are and thus what you should specifically bring to a conflict so this could help decision makers at every echelon and it goes beyond just civil affairs civil affairs we have a huge stake in this the military decision makers across the spectrum could benefit from the uncertainty modeling capabilities of ficus do you think it would be best to keep these programs in the CA sim world or create a, a new field just to do different programs? If we're trying to model atomic data, then we have to look at the sources that control that data because the models don't work without the data. And where that atomic level data comes from is from census data, a wide range of different observations, and many different civil organizations maintain the data that we need to be able to run these types of simulations and models. So that is far larger than any one branch or organization that requires whole-of-government approach to do this accurately over time. So the role I see for civil affairs and for our experts, our 38 golf experts, uh, one of which is on my team, to do this is I see us as helping shepherd this technology and other promising technologies which can inform the civil system forward. We have a role in, in helping identify these promising technologies, helping specify to Army Futures Command and other organizations such as Defense Innovation Unit how to specify fees to be participating as the customer and testing these capabilities and being able to demonstrate to senior decision makers why this is worth investing in, what it will do for them, how it will greatly increase efficiency and reduce cost. So I see that the role of them in civil affairs is as experts in the civil terrain is to help shepherd, develop, and demonstrate the capabilities of these nation systems and technologies that are coming online and to kind of be uh, the caretakers. However, for these systems to work, there are many parties involved outside of SIM that we're just the aggregator for. We're just the hub for many of the sources of information, and we can run these simulations on demand, etc. But this is going to require an effort, which is ultimately to be achieved success at the highest levels, is going to require folks participating in concert with the civil affairs community. It seems like these programs are some of the best used for mega cities and dense urban areas. So do you think the commanders are taking it serious with the number of rising of these dense urban areas? I think Dr. Dar probably has something to add in, but I'll start out. This is a huge concern. The, the last statistic I saw in my day job, I am the Assistant Operations Officer for the Advanced Training Division at the Marine Corps Tactics and Operations Group Ground Center of Excellence. We're an MOS producing schoolhouse where we have all of the future operations officers and intelligence and tactics instructors coming through here for training. And I taught a class there on civil operations and uh, civil military operations. And the statistic that I saw when we were developing the class is that 
that 60% of the earth is going to be urbanized by about 2050, and that trend's accelerating. So the number of megacities are mushrooming all over the world. And of course, the current national defense strategy directly identifies that urbanized literal terrain is where we expect most future military operations, whether small or large, to be occurring. So if you want to fight as you train, then we need to start training urban terrain and scenarios. Now, the Department of Defense doesn't have any true urban training centers. They could probably buy bombed out uh, old suburbs of Detroit and build one for pennies on the dollar, but we don't currently have that right now. Nor do we have the analytical or digital systems to manage the inherent complexity of 10 million plus agents running around, all with different associations in different groups and organizations, all with different roles to the city as a system, and be able to model all the things that could happen when we or the adversary takes certain action within that terrain. So we have overall underinvestment as a force in developing these types of modeling capabilities. The good news is for a fraction of what it costs to purchase military hardware, we could develop very robust simulations, including artificial intelligence and expertism that would give us great insight into not only the potential ramifications of social systems and their interrelationships, how they might break, how we might use them to influence for U.S. policy, but also modeling how we could repair them so that we can transition back home and not have a lengthy dangling commitment that leads to fragile states and instability. These systems can help inform us to ensure that we're employing the right resources and capabilities and that when we enter conflict, we have a realistic understanding of what is and is not possible and what strategic objectives are more or less achievable. How easy would it be to change programming for some of the megacities? Think of two different types of megacities. You have like Lagos, Nigeria, which has more shanty towns versus very urbanized ones, say in South Korea. How adaptable are these programs for the different types of megacities? I'll let Dr. Dar talk about MJ here in a moment because that product really focuses on, on megacities. Uh, but the ficus, it doesn't matter to ficus whether you're using a high-tech urbanized megacity like New York with the boroughs or, or whether you're talking about Mumbai. The key is getting that neighborhood-level data and then the, the simulations with the AI will do all of the rest. Now, in a highly urbanized, technologically advanced environment, you probably have very robust civil agencies and systems which collect and store that data, making it easier and less costly to procure it to run these models. But the models themselves will run just as effectively in FICUS, whether a megacity has a great degree of technological advancement and infrastructure, or if it does not, it just adds a complexity into how the data is gathered. Dr. Carr, do you want to talk about MK? Sure. So MK is a small business innovative research project sponsored by Rihanna Hazel and Pete Grisaitis out of Army Research Lab. And this is an application of some decision models that we at KBSI uh, Knowledge Based Systems has developed over several years, applying those decision models to unserved environments, megacities, and really any region or area in which you have these multiple cultural groups sort of rubbing against each other in various ways in order to cause frictions and so on. What I would say to your question about how do different cities compare to one another, what we would say is that yes, it it is true that there is no one-size-fits-all model that would apply to one city as easily as another city. What there are human biases that appear to be common across cultures that we need to be able to model. So let me back up just a little bit before we get back to the, the megacity question. 
So we, we've been developing human decision-making models, predictive or forecasting models for, for several years now. How this started was we ran into some papers from the psychological literature. It was spearheaded by Professor Jerome Boosmeyer at Indiana University. They looked at human decision-making and made the observation that human decision-making often deviates from what our classical models would predict. So, for example, humans typically are not utility maximizing agents. They don't follow classical probability laws when making decisions. And this, in fact, goes back to the work by Tversky and Kahneman back in the, I guess, the 70s, where they ran very simple psychological experiments to demonstrate that people are not these sort of, quote-unquote, econs that always make the rational sort of robotic decision-making in any situation. They deviate from that based on biases that they have, experiences they have, emotions that they have. And so what uh, Professor Boosmeyer at Indiana University did is he identified quantum probability as a way to model human decision-making when it deviates from classical rules. And so you can think of it, I won't get into all the math here, but you can think of it as people hold various beliefs and experiences, and these things interact, much like waves interact, to either amplify or attenuate the likelihood of a given decision. For example, I may look at a situation and have a likelihood of taking course of action in one way, uh, but someone else, because of, say, a availability heuristic or a confirmation bias, they're going to look at that very differently, and the factors that go into their decision is going to have the effect of amplifying the likelihood that they would take a decision different from me. And so the, the challenge we have in megacities is that you may have this data that sort of averages out a given city, and you can make certain rankings or certain uh, predictions about the quote-unquote average person in that city, the beliefs that they would hold, but that really merges everyone together into one sort of unified decision-maker, which is not the case. Within a city, there are multiple neighborhoods, multiple cultures that you need to be able to model at a much finer level of detail. So at a neighborhood level, you may have a particular group is very anti-government, not because of some rational decision-making calculus, but because of a, a grievance that goes back you know, decades, if not longer. And so we need to have a model that allows us to not only forecast or predict the likelihood of a group taking an action, but also a explanation as to why. So if we think about this sort of in the current technology space, all of the deep learning and data mining and AI technologies, I won't say almost, are going to find associations or patterns in the data. So we can take a bunch of data, we can do some data mining on it, do some deep learning, and we can find these patterns or associations that will allow us to make predictions. Very powerful, very important technology. But in some cases, what's missing is the actual problem process by which a decision maker looks at the data and makes a decision. And so to address that, what's needed is a causal model. So a causal model explains the process by which a decision maker is going to look at data and make a decision. And so our models that we've been developing include both a quantum probability model of how people make decisions, which incorporates interference among different factors, and also this causal model 
in which people are going to look at the data in different orders and different sequences and co combine the data in different ways to come to a very different conclusion. One of the examples that I like to illustrate was an experiment done in which a break room in an office building and there was a, a coffee machine in the break room and people were expected to throw their money in the coffee can each day to, to support the purchase of the supplies. And so what they did in this experiment is, is one day they would put a poster or in one treatment they would say a, a very peaceful meadow right above the, the coffee donation and you know people would put their money in and they would count it up at the end of the day. And another treatment they would put a picture of say a person watching or a set of eyes watching and people would you know throw their money in that day well you would think that you know what does that have to do with anything well it turns out that the day the treatments in which the poster with a set of eyes was in the coffee break room people contributed a lot more money and so by simple anchoring or priming people in that way you get very very different outcomes and so we've taken these this decision model and we've applied it to megacities so we want to look at things like disaster relief, disease outbreak control, and apply these models to those situations so that we can help the, the planner to forecast how is a given group likely to respond to a particular intervention and use that to, to forecast that, but also to provide a, a hypothesis as to why they might be acting that way. So because if you know the why, then you can plan interventions to nudge or to change the behavior. So we're looking at the Ebola outbreak and the DRC or applying our models to that situation. And what we found is that people generally are not going to the Ebola treatment centers because of a variety of things. So they, they, they believe that people go there to die, which is not false, but it's also not the point. So we need the international authorities need to convince people that they need to go to these treatment centers to get treated. But they're, they're going against rumor, cultural issues, all these sorts of things so that where people are not going to these treatment centers. So you know, looking at our research and we found that if people have a testimony from someone that they trust, someone, maybe a neighbor, a member of their group, then they're much more likely to go to these treatment centers. So why is that? Well, there are biases involved there, things such as a halo effect, where I'm going to believe what a trusted communicator tells me, not because of the message, not necessarily because of what they're telling me, but because I trust them. And the testimony of, say, a neighbor who goes to the, to a treatment center and comes back better is, is much more powerful than official government communications and so on. And so by incorporating these sort of biases in our models, we can look at a simulation, again, like Major Hancock said, we can simulate these different belief models, these different causal models into a simulation to predict what is the likelihood that we will get the change in behavior that we desire if we take advantage of something like halo effect or availability heuristic or any number of these biases. And so that's what we're doing with MCAVE. And also there's another project that's currently ongoing that we're looking at applying the data to our models. And so you'll talk a lot about data this, in this interview. And so our current work is looking at how do we collect data in order to inform and support our, the predictions of our model. That really is the good question of who should be the ones to collect it, but who also is the best ones to input the data? Well, you know, with the advancement of expert systems, it's possible to automate a lot of that. So m 
manual input of data is not something that on a large scale I suspect is going to be required to make some of these models run. Most of these types of data points that we're interested in collecting at one point in the process get converted into a machine readable format and products like Ficus and MCAVE are able to ingest many different types of formats. So what, what you will have is there will have to be a QAQC element which will have to make sure that the data is matching up properly as those expert systems are running and things that don't seem to add up or are incomplete will get flagged and a human will probably have to look at that as an analytic control element. But that's true in any type of science that's being conducted is that you have to do some analysis on it to determine you know, what is a good data point and needs to be in that data set and what for whatever reason is not and should be excluded. That way when you present it to a decision maker you can give them a confidence interval. You can say you know, our, we have high confidence in this or, or our margin of error if you can calculate that is expected to be X, Y, or Z. So I'll return to the interview in just a moment, but the Civil Affairs Association continues its value to its members by having a professional advisory board and an excellent research library on many different topics to support civil affairs and its ever-changing needs. The Civil Affairs Association is an advocate for civil affairs within the DOD community. Membership costs are low, and the benefit of belonging to the Civil Affairs Association will expand one's knowledge of global and military topics within the civil affairs community. So please consider stopping by the Civil Affairs Association and supporting its cause. I wanted to just talk a little bit more about what drew me to MK. Prior to becoming a civil affairs officer, I was a PSYOP, former enlisting officer as well. And in deployed environments, one of the challenges we had was good, accurate target audience analysis, which is the heart of conducting psychological influence operations in order to get a foreign target audience to exhibit specific psychological objectives that support U.S. foreign policy. And being able to measure and model the human environment so that we could take a hypothetical intervention of some kind and then simulate if that would work or not work. We, we just didn't have that capability. And oftentimes when we would predict, you know, with subject matter expert uh, using value tree analysis and other tools that were available at the time, when we would try and predict how the local population would react to something, our behavioral models were often proven wrong. One big thinker in the field of psychological operations is I.D. Gregory Cease, who's a, a PSYOP battalion commander and also works during the day at uh, Johns Hopkins in the Applied Physics Lab there. And, you know, he stated, look, we have all of these different models. We have drive reduction models. We have Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We have all these psychological models designed to predict human behavior, but none of them are very accurate in the final analysis. And ultimately, to this day, we do not truly understand why humans make the decisions they make, why some behaviors occur and other expected behaviors don't occur. I believe that one of the reasons for that is because human information and decision making, the human brain is organized in a quantum framework. But traditional computing systems which run these simulations are not quantum. However, the AI model that Dr. Dar is building in MK is a quantum AI model. It is capable to some degree uh, within specific parameters of understanding how human or three-dimensional information is organized 
organized to make specific decisions at a specific point in time that may vary from one moment to the next. That allows us to more accurately forecast what actual human behavior might be in the event of a typhoon, a missile strike, an outbreak of cholera, whatever it may be. And that will allow us to more accurately tailor and stage the appropriate resources and equipment to save lives, alleviate human suffering, and to isolate as much as possible the civilian population from military action. So there's enormous potential in the field of predicting human behavior. Yeah, let me just add to that. So a lot of these mega cities that the military may be interested in, there is no data. So you're you're going into a situation where you don't have opinion data, you don't have detailed sentiment data and whatnot. Models such as ours will allow us to do is, is hypothesize a set of specific behaviors that may be relevant, and then that will tell you what kind of data you should try to go out and collect. For example, the, the scenario that I mentioned about the power of eyewitness testimony in a place like the DRC, our models first predicted that that might be the case, and then we went out to find out if there did exist any data that would support that, and it turned out that it did. So if you have the data, it will make the models more accurate. But our model, given its predictive forecasting capability, can also suggest this is the type of data to try to confirm, or this is the hypothesis you need to try to confirm by collecting uh, data. After the publication of your paper, have you seen any sort of feedback from either the SIM or any of the other communities out there? I'll step in on that. We've actually received fairly positive feedback. The United States Army Civil Affairs and Psychological Operations Command so supports our work and our effort, is very interested in it, is asking more about it. Special Operations Command was very interested in some of these capabilities. Major General Sontag, before he turned over our PT of SOCOM, a two-star KTO letter to continue development of the fight system. The Civil Affairs Proponency, the SIM chief there is Dr. Lynn Copeland. She and her team have been very interested in assisting in helping develop this. I even was contacted by the CJ9 of a COCOM saying, I need this capability, let's, let's talk about this. There definitely is interest to generate these. Where we're at is we need to take the next step and commit a little bit of funding to doing some real world testing and analysis on these so that we can prove that these quantum capabilities and these simulation and modeling capabilities at the atomic level really can inform pattern of life and human decision making within military operations, especially in urban terrain. I'd want to expand just a little bit on, on why we need modeling capabilities like what MCAVE and what FICUS can deliver if we continue to fund them. We've talked about in emergency situations such as humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, how we, how we could model what would happen if a, a tsunami hit or an earthquake hit, etc. We can also model epidemiology with great accuracy. We did use the FICUS product to model a hypothetical outbreak of cholera in Bangladesh. Were we able to pinpoint exactly where the hotspots were and where the major sources of spreading would be, allowing us to model uh, where we would need to put what levels of medical resources and equipment and what languages they would need to speak uh, to treat the people, as well as where you would need to initiate immediate quarantine to, to, to limit the spread. And that was done with great accuracy. And of course, uh, these capabilities are essential in security issues, which is the traditional domain of, of, of the military. So in early phase operations, uh, FICUS has been used to model 
model what the evacuation of U.S. personnel from Seoul, Korea could look like if artillery bombardment started occurring. And, and that was very informative, which has helped shape the O plans based upon those results. And of course, with their transportation level simulation within the Ficus product, you can simulate shoot-no-shoot scenarios. You have a, a choke point like a bridge that you're considering putting fires on and doing either a tactical or strategic destruction. You can simulate what will happen to the pattern of life of the civil society if you do that. And sometimes you may find that they'll reroute straight into your main uh, avenue of maneuver, which is probably not the intended effect that you, that you want to have if you authorize that particular fire mission. These tools have great capability for informing both kinetic and non-kinetic decisions by both civil affairs and other information-related capabilities uh, forces, but, but also for combat arms, kinetic maneuver forces could benefit greatly from further development in these specific areas. Is there any follow-on things that you would like to say about this? Yeah, I would recommend two books that everyone should read, I think. And the first is Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. It's basically a summary of the career of of Amos Tversky and and Danny Kahneman in looking into these sorts of problems where you have people engage in two types of of thinking. The first, I call System 1, which is sort of a fast, emotional, gut instinct uh, decision-making. And the second is System 2, which is deliberate, you know, I'm going to buy a car, I'm going to create a spreadsheet, fill in all the, you know, the factors, and I'm going to come up with a, you know, recommendation. We're very good at that, very good at system two level thinking, system one level, not so good at, and that's what our our model is intended to solve. And the second book is the, the Book of Why by Judea Pearl, and that talks about causal modeling and why we need to go beyond data mining, deep learning, machine learning approaches to look at the underlying causal structures that humans use to make decisions. I have no financial interest in either. They're, they're excellent books. Very accessible. What about any podcast series that you gentlemen recommend besides 1CA? I like Freakonomics is good. It is it addresses a lot of the behavioral economics area, decision making, you know, how you know psychology and, and economics is, is coming together to figure out how to nudge. So nudge is the big term, how to nudge people in one way or another. And um, as you can Hancock said earlier, and when you're talking about the political and the social space, you're talking about changing people's decision making and behavior could be in very small ways to get sort of the big bang impact that, that we desire to hopefully avoid actual kinetic conflict. Concur with everything Dr. Darwood said, and thank you for recommending those books. I'll scratch them off the list of, of ones that I was going to recommend here on the podcast. I, I do have three that I think are important to, to be culturally literate in modern military operations that I would mention that I, I think that every military officer and senior NCO should be first in to be culturally literate in modern military operations. Uh, the first and foremost is The New Rules of War, Victory in the Age of Durable Disorder by Sean McFate. I understand that Sean McFate is going to be one of the Civil Affairs Association's keynote speakers coming up at a convention in D.C. Quick plug for him. He is fantastic. Would highly recommend your audience if they can attend and if they can't attend that function to get a hold or a transcript or if you make a podcast, it would be well worth listening to. Probably the, the most important book I read, a military book in the last 10 years, is that New Rules of War. The second, and that talks about what postmodern warfare actually looks like, the actual conflicts we're fighting, and specifies and proves the case of why we're achieving tactical victory and why we're not achieving strategic victory and what we would need to do to start winning wars again. The Fourth Generation Warfare Handbook, this is produced by William S. Lind and 
and former Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Gregory A. Field. The Fourth Generation Warfare Handbook discusses Fourth Generation Warfare System, what those are, how those are built, how they're trained, and, and of course those are the most effective systems to fight actual modern warfare. And so that is very important as it provides some of the solution to, to the problems that uh, Mr. McFade outlined. And finally, you know, the, the most powerful weapons in the world no longer fire bullets. I'm sure my brothers in combat arms probably don't want to hear that, but the power to manipulate and control people and get them to exhibit behaviors that you want them to exhibit is more powerful than ever. And information operations, which includes civil affairs and PSYOP and public affairs to some degree and electronic warfare and all of these different information-related capabilities all have a role in this. But to start understanding how important this truly is and the power of it, especially the, the ability of social media platforms to influence human behavior, I would recommend the recent publication, Like War, The Weaponization of Social Media by P.W. Singer and Emerson T. Brookings. And that's all I have for you. Thank you. That's great. With these programs, it really is an amazing how it's evolving and trying to do predictor cycles of everything. This is Dr. Timothy Dar and Major Brian Hancock, and thank you for joining us today. And thank you very much for participating today with us. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.